We've been in a series called Gods at War, talking about the idols that can capture people's lives and take root in our heart. And today we're going to be talking about the gods of money. And what better place to turn to than to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like to read for us Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, so do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, uh, this, these words are just so powerful, so relevant. They apply to us just as much, if not more, than they did in the days when you spoke them in that first century. God, we need to hear it. And we live in an age where we have abundance, but we wrestle with how much is too much. And help us to be good stewards of all we've been given. Help us to see that all that we have is a gift from you, to be used for your honor and glory. Would you speak to us today words of encouragement and challenge and conviction? In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed how God often uses circumstances to reveal the idols in our heart? You know, I think back just a few years ago to the global economic crisis that took place in 2008. It's been called the Great Recession. We think back to 1929, the stock market crash was called the Great Depression and this sort of the Great Recession and had a dramatic effect upon many people. And in the days following that market crash in 2008, 2009, uh, there were sadly a number of people who committed suicide in the days that followed that was strangely reminiscent to what happened after the 1929 stock market crash. 
For example, the acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, and he slit his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightbridge, London. And when a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose and leapt from a 29th floor office building. A friend said this Baron Stern thing broke his spirit. All of those things were just so tragic in the days that followed. For each of these men, money had become an idol in their life, and when the market crashed, their God died. Their God died. Everything that they had put their hope in was lost in a moment, it seemed. Money is one of the most common idols. We ascribe to money almost godlike qualities. We look to money to give us security, comfort, status, power, significance, pleasure. And if an idol is anything that we look to to give us what only God can give us, then we can understand how money can have such a grip on people's lives. It is very easy for it to become an idol in our life, either out of greed or out of fear, when we need to put our trust in God. That's probably why Jesus talked about money so often. If you were to look at the Gospels and read through them and you think about it, Jesus said more about money than he did about heaven and hell, or more than he said about baptism or marriage or other very important topics. He knew the grip that could have on our life. And it isn't money itself that is the problem. It is our attitude towards it and the place that it holds in our heart. We see that in other places in Scripture too. For example, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. When people long for it, lust for it even, wanting more and more, they can wander away from the faith. In Colossians 3.5, he said that greed is idolatry, this desire to accumulate more and more for ourselves. But do we see it in ourselves? Do we even see it as a danger, or do we see that we struggle in this area? You know, as a pastor, I think I probably only had one, maybe two people in all of my ministry ever come in to me, to come in and talk to me about money. Very few people will come in and say, you know, I have a problem with greed. They'll talk about other issues in their life or other problems or sins that they're wrestling with, but very few people will acknowledge a struggle in the area of money. And so what I'd like us to do is to look at this passage that Jesus spoke and ask ourselves three probing questions. Question number one, where is my treasure? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? 
Where is my treasure? In verse 19, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. In the Greek, it is very strong. It is implying that you are doing it. Now stop it. Stop storing up treasures on earth. And whenever I read this passage, I always think about the people that Jesus is talking to there in that first century setting. I mean, if we were to look back on them by our standards of affluence today, we'd look back and we'd think all of those people were probably dirt poor. I mean, that they had very little. Uh, They don't have, you know, cars and appliances and cell phones and access to medical care and all of the amenities that we do. They don't have the abundance of food that we can get at our grocery stores at any time of the year. I mean, if Jesus would say this to first century farmers and fishermen, what would he say to us? We shouldn't store up treasures on earth. Why? Well, first of all, Jesus tells us that it's not a wise investment. He tells us that here on earth, when we store up treasures, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. He's talking about the natural decay that can take place where everything we own just wears out and needs to be replaced. But there's also the loss that can come, whether it's through thieves or a market collapse or misfortune in business or other things that can go wrong. It's transient. There's no security here. There's no guarantee that everything's going to last. And so when we put all that we own into this life, one day it's going to perish. But everything that we give to God will remain and last if it is done from a right heart. A second reason why we shouldn't store up treasures here on earth is that it is dangerous. It is dangerous. In verse 21, Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where we put our money shows what we value, and our heart will be drawn to it. If we, you know, put all our money into a particular passion or hobby or interest, our heart's going to go there. I mean, that's going to be the thing that we think about and dream about or want or covet. And if we put our money into the things of God and we are excited about the ministry of the church or missions or evangelism or a particular area that God has called you to work in and you're just excited about it, your heart's going to be there. You're going to value it. You're going to care about what happens in that ministry or in that mission. To store up treasures on earth is a dangerous thing because our heart will be drawn to what we put our money into. There's a man named Sam Polk, a young man, and by the age of 30, he had made more than $5 million in bonuses working as a Wall Street trader. He was living it up in Manhattan. By the age of 25, he said, I, I was living the dream. He said, it was an easy thing for me to say, if I wanted to go to a World Series game, I could buy the best seats there and I could get in and do that when I realized that wasn't possible for everyone. I had a tremendous feeling of importance and power because of the money that I was making as a 25-year-old kid. But at the age of 30, he abruptly quit his job on Wall Street. Why did he do it? 
Well, he had made a transfer from working as a trader to working in a hedge fund in New York City, one of the large hedge funds there. And he said, you know, I, I was bumping shoulders and rubbing elbows with guys that were billionaires. Billionaires. And I was a giant fireball of greed. I think about how my colleagues could buy Micronesia if they wanted to or become the mayor of New York City. They didn't just have money, they had power. Senators came to their offices. They were treated like royalty. And Polk describes one year when he got angry over a $3.6 million bonus because he didn't think it was enough. He realized that he had what he would now call a wealth addiction. He said, I came to realize I had been using money as this thing that would quell all my fears. I had this belief that maybe someday I would get enough money that I, that I would no longer be scared and I would feel successful and I would feel secure. But one of the things I learned on Wall Street was that no matter how much money I made, the money was never going to do it. Money had become an idol in his life. You know, we've been talking in this series about how there's this, this God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person and it can't be filled by any created thing, but only by God himself. But men make idols out of all kinds of things. Gods of pleasure, gods of love, gods of money, gods of power. And they try to fill that void to give meaning and purpose in life. And they, they do it. You've heard testimonies of people who felt like they had made it. And there was still an emptiness in their heart. There's still a longing. It was never enough. It never satisfied because only God can satisfy. Where is your treasure? What do you find yourself thinking about or dreaming about when you have free time? Where do your thoughts go? And what is it that you value? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Second question. Who is my master? God or money? Who is my master? In verse 22, Jesus began by talking about our vision, our eye. And he said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Why did he begin there when he was talking about this decision about who is it that you're going to serve? Well, Jesus knows that what we see affects the way we live. What we put into our mind is going to affect our behavior and our actions. And so if what we're putting into our mind is simply the world's value system, and we adopt that as our own, and we say, you know, the way to be successful and important in life is to make a lot of money and climb the corporate ladder and gather all this stuff, you know, and then that'll give me meaning and significance. That's the way we're going to live. But if we turn to God's Word, and we take to heart what Jesus said, and we value what God says is eternal and important, we're going to live very differently than the world. And that's what Jesus is getting at. The person whose eye is good is the person who sees the folly of storing up riches on earth, that that's not going to last. The person whose eye is bad is the person who's just simply going the way of the world and following its value and its systems. That's why it's so important to know the Word of God. Without it, you'll just go along with everybody else on what they are doing. 
For example, if we think the goal of life is to make lots of money so we can spend it on ourselves, we can do that. We can pursue that. But in the process, you may lose your soul. You may wander away from the faith. We can gain the whole world, as Jesus said, and lose or forfeit our soul. And what profit is that? This morning, if you were in our adult Bible fellowship groups, you heard the testimony of a man who wanted to be fabulously wealthy. Those were his own words, fabulously wealthy. But along the way, someone challenged him and said, you know, hey, what's this going to cost you? Is it going to cost you your marriage? Is it going to cost you your family, time with them, because you'll be spending all your time at work? Is it going to cost you your friends? Will it cost you your health? Will it cost you your life? Is that worth it? And when he looked back on his life, he realized that none of his goals were spiritual. It was all about me. I mean, I I thought that was a great comment he was making, that none of his goals were spiritual. What about you? Do you have spiritual goals in your life? Do you have a goal that says, you know what, I want to read through the Scripture every year? Or that says, you know what, I I really don't know the Bible as well as I would like, and I'd like to be in a study group that can help me to become a follower of Jesus and a disciple. I want to make that a goal. Do you have a goal about wanting to go on a mission trip or serve in a ministry or work in a homeless shelter or care for those that are sick? Do you have a goal about how much you want to give to the Lord? How much you want to give back to Him out of what He has given to you? And that goal may be even over and above, say, a tithe. That may be wanting to give back more. What is it that God has put on your heart? And do you think about those spiritual things? Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And again, think about that audience that he's speaking to then in first century Israel. And think about what he would say to us today. Divided loyalty won't work. Either our wealth will be a tool that is used to serve Christ, or it will be an idol that displaces Christ. Either we're going to understand and recognize that all that I have comes from God and I want to give it back to Him, or else we're going to set our heart on it and it's going to be a competitor with Christ. And we're going to hold on to it and want to be you know, careful with it and, and stingy in the way that we use it because we are not trusting God with what we have. I love the story of R.G. Letourneau. Some of you have heard some things about him in the past, but if you're not familiar with him, uh, he lived in the early part of, this, of the 1900s. He was born in 1888, uh, lived and worked and built a business through the years of the Great Depression and then on. And uh, if you have ever driven by a highway construction project and you've seen the giant earth-moving equipment that's out there with the bulldozers and all of that, and you wondered who invented those machines, the answer would be R.G. Letourneau. Or if you've been to the Gulf Coast and you've seen the large offshore oil rigs that can probe below the ocean floor to bring up oil that really feeds our way of life in many ways, and you wondered who invented those things or came up with a way to do it, it was Letourneau. 
And if you think about, and you've been to maybe one of those old-fashioned uh, old threshing bees where you've seen the old steam engines and the steel tires that used to be on tractors back then, and you wondered who turned those beasts into agile, rubber-footed machines, it was Letourneau. It was amazing all of the things that he invented and perfected in his business career. Laterno was born in 1888, and he quit school in eighth grade to work in a steel foundry. I was reading about him, and they said that, you know, he had a hard time focusing in school. He always wanted to be busy and doing stuff. And they said if it was today, he probably would have been diagnosed with ADD, treated for it, and maybe would have never invented all these things he came up with. He just had such high energy. And uh, he started his business, but he was wrestling with his relationship with Christ. He had dropped out of school. He was working in this steel foundry first, and then he got married, and then he was going on. And he made a commitment to Christ when he was 17 at a revival meeting where he said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. But he was still straddling the fence at times, still struggling with what does that look like in my life. He's married, and in 1919, he hit the lowest point of his life when their first son died at the age of four months. He went to his knees. He didn't blame God. Instead, he opened his heart to God and he asked, where have I gone wrong? It was then he believed God said to him, my child, you have been working hard, but for the wrong things. You've been working for material things when you should have been working for spiritual things. The words were few, but the meaning ran deep. And all that long night, I reviewed my past, and I saw where I had been paying only token tribute to God. Going through the motions of acting like a Christian, but really serving myself and my conscience instead of serving Him. And instead of being a humble servant, I was taking pride in the way I was working or in my accomplishments and what I was making and doing while scarcely paying a any concern for my spiritual debt to God. And for my lesson that night, I can now say that when a man realizes that spiritual things are worth more, and certainly they will last when material things are gone, he will work harder for spiritual things. I discovered how much God loved me and how much he wants us to love him in return. And the verse he turned to that night was Matthew 6:33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. R.G. Turner looked back on that night as the night when God really did a work in his heart, humbling him, bringing him to that point where he would put God first in his life, put God first in his business, in everything that he did. He went on, and it was incredible the things, again, that he was able to invent and develop in those years. During World War II, some 70% of the earth-moving equipment that was used during World War II by our military was equipment that they had made. He developed the uh, Panama toes that pull ships through the canals and locks and the Panama Canal, and it's just it's amazing to see the list. But equally amazing is his generosity. By the end of his life, he was giving away 90% of his profit to the Lord's work, and he was living on 10%.
He gave to his church. He gave to missions. He started a school, Eternal University. He was just, you know, giving it away as fast as God had been blessing. He didn't want to hang on to it. He didn't want to pass it on to his children. He would give them a modest means for their future plans, but he wanted to give it all to the Lord. And in one talk, he summed it up this way. He said, I think the secret of a real out-and-out Christian life is to fall in love with the Lord. Now, what he said there is exactly what I've been saying to you in this series. That the way to displace the idols in our heart is not to try harder. It's not to come up with a bunch of rules to follow. It's not to try and gut it out. The way to displace the idols in our heart is to fall in love with Jesus. To look to Him. To understand how much He has given us and what He has done for us. That He gave all that we might be forgiven and we might have eternal life. And the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we want to do what He has asked. It's like what John said in 1 John when he said His commandments are not burdensome. It's not burdensome to follow the Lord when you love Him. When you understand that His will is good and His ways are perfect, and that He's in control of our life, and that He is our provider, it's not hard to give. It's not hard to serve and to do the things that He asks us to do. Who is our master? Is it God or money? And thirdly, who is my provider? Is it God or is it me? Does it all depend upon me to do everything to make a living? God does expect us to work. That's the normal way that He provides for us. But it is God who ultimately is our provider, who gives us life and health and wisdom and strength and who opens doors and who provides the things that we have to enjoy in this life. So Jesus comes along and in verse 25, He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, it's not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. And he uses examples of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Where Jesus gave this sermon on the uh, hillside by the Sea of Galilee, those things would have been right there. And he's talking to this crowd of people and he's saying, I mean, look at the birds. Do they store up stuff in their barns? No. Does God feed them? Yes. Look at these flowers, the beautiful flowers in the field. Does Solomon ever clothe as well as these? No. Does God care for them? Yes. And how much more value are you to God than these? Don't worry. Your Father knows what you need. But seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. Put Him first in your life, in your heart. Trust Him, and He will provide for you. God is our provider. Now I want to give some balance here too so that no one misunderstands what I'm saying. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean these things. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that I must live a life of asceticism. Some have tried that, going into a monastery, selling all and doing all that. But when Jesus said to the rich young ruler to go sell everything you have and come follow me. That wasn't a universal command for everyone. He was putting his finger on the thing that was holding this guy back from following him. 
But we see in the book of Acts, for example, how Lydia was a businesswoman or how Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. And there were people who had occupations and means who opened up their homes that became house churches for the gospel. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you have to be an ascetic. It also doesn't mean that providing for the future shows a lack of faith. In Proverbs, we see the importance of storing up for the future. It is good to prepare for our retirement and to have a plan in that way. Uh, The Scripture says that a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. It's good to think about what will we pass on to our children or our grandchildren as we are able. But I think all of us that are in that position have to wrestle with how much. How much do you give to them? And what is it that you are providing for? Because they're going to have their own faith stories of seeing God provide for them. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you can't be in business to make a profit. God wants you to do that well. And He wants you to uh, glorify Him in your work. And being a businessman or a businesswoman, you provide jobs for other people. Uh, You provide income that helps them to meet their needs. All of that is a good thing. And being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that all wealthy people have made money their God. Some of the most generous people are those that God has blessed, like R.G. Letourneau and many, many others. And when I think about our church and the facility that God has given to us, we wouldn't have any of this if it wasn't for your faithfulness in giving. And God has blessed you, and you have given, and many of you have done that in just extraordinary ways. God is good, and God uses those means to grow His church and to grow the kingdom. What it does mean to be a follower of Jesus, though, are these things. It means that I recognize that everything I own belongs to God. He's the giver of it all. And that I am just the steward of what I've been given. And one day I'll have to give an account to God for how I use the the money, the wealth, the possessions that I've been entrusted with. Did I share those freely? Was my heart open and gracious toward others? Was I a generous giver when it came to the kingdom of God? Because thirdly, There's a principle taught throughout Scripture that the tithe belongs to God. The tithe belongs to God. And by a tithe, I'm talking about how in the Old Testament they were to give a tenth, 10% of their income that went to the Lord to support His work. In the New Testament, we see that principle repeated, but it's grace-giving. It is we are to give graciously. We are to excel in this grace of giving. And if you know anything about grace, grace always exceeds the law. Grace is always more generous, more kind, more forgiving, more understanding. And so there's this principle that if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to understand that the tithe belongs to God. Michael Wilkins, in his commentary on this passage, said that there are three purposes for money in Scripture, three primary reasons why God gives us money. The first is to care for ourselves and our family and not be a burden to others. The Scripture says things like, if a man does not provide for the members of his own household, he's worse than an infidel. That we are to be working and doing what we can as we are able. We're not to be lazy. We're not to be dependent upon others. But we are to work with our hands to provide for our family. 
But secondly, we are to use what we've been given to help those who are in need, and especially the family of faith. There are times when someone is unemployed or someone because of disability can't work, and that's where the church can step in and where we step in to care for one another who are members of the family to assist in those times of need with our benevolent fund. And thirdly, God gives us money to encourage and support His work in spreading the gospel at home and around the world. It's how the church grows. It's how missionaries are sent out through the faithful giving of God's people. That's why it's there. That's what God has given to us. And every day we have a choice to make on how we're going to spend the resources we've been given. Are we going to invest them here now simply or are we going to invest them in ways that will bear fruit for eternity? Three simple questions. Where is your treasure? Is it on earth or in heaven? Who's your master? Is it God or money? And who's your provider? Is it God or is it you that must provide for all your needs? How would you answer those questions? I want to challenge you and encourage you to grow in this grace of giving. I want to tell you that one of the greatest joys in the Christian life is to be able to participate in what God is doing around the world through our gifts and to be able to do that because of what he's given for us. You see, the example that we have in all of this is Jesus. Now think of this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 9 where Paul said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Think about Jesus there in heaven and the glory that he shared with his Father who was rich beyond measure, was willing to lay aside all of that, to come to earth, to become poor, to become like us. Why? So that we might become rich. So that we might experience His forgiveness, His salvation, His eternal life, and the glory of heaven. If He had not done that, we would all still be lost in our sins. When I think about what giving means, it means that we are giving up something that we value for something we value even more. Jesus was willing to give up His position in heaven because He valued you and me even more than holding on to that. That's incredible. I mean, that is incredible generosity that He would come and He would die for us and take upon Himself our sins and suffer in our place so that we might live. But secondly, I want you to give generously. I think of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8 when he said that each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God wants you to pray about it. Ask Him. Lord, what is it that you want me to give? What is it that you want me to do? And, you know, I don't know whether you come on Sunday and, and you're not in the habit of giving at all and you just you haven't given anything or whether you are a consistent, regular, faithful person who ties or whether you're somewhere in between. God knows that. But I want to encourage you to take that next step wherever it may be. 
and to pray and to ask God. If, you're, if you've been not in the habit of giving, that you would say, God, what is it you want me to do? You know, I would encourage you to tithe, to begin to do that. You can do that if you will set that aside in your budget and you will see God provide in amazing ways for you as he meet your need. I think about in our life for Gail and I, we started doing that right from the start in our marriage. And even through those years when we were in seminary where I was living below the poverty line, I mean, seriously, with two kids, and we're below the poverty line, and we're trusting God to provide. We had sold our house. We had sunk everything we had into our seminary education. And we had nothing. And I remember in the years when we were doing our, or in that year when we were doing our internship, and there was a time when the church where we were at would have a food shower for us. And I think of how that was humbling, but how God used it. And there would be times when there would be an, un, an anonymous gift that would be given of maybe $300 or $500 that would meet this bill or get us through the month. I know what that's like to tithe even in that position and to see God provide. And believe me, I'd rather be on the other side of being able to give freely and generously and not having to feel like everything was so tight. But God can take care of us and He can provide for us. And I want to encourage you to take that step of faith and to see God work in your life because there is grace that comes when we give. And there is joy that comes when we participate in God's work. Do it not under reluctance or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the word there in Greek is actually the word hilarious. God loves an hilarious giver, someone who finds great joy in participating in him, with him in his work. So will you do what God is asking of you? And will you pray and ask in your heart, Lord Jesus, how can I honor you in this area of my life? Let's pray. Father, whenever we obey your word, there is joy and there is blessing that comes. There's just this sense of satisfaction of seeing you work. And I know that this is a step of faith. And I know that it can be hard to do at times. And Father, I pray for each one who's here today as they wrestle with this and come before you, that you would speak to their hearts. And give them the faith, give them the ability to trust and to put you first in this area of their life and to watch you work. Lord, you are a great and generous God. You showed that when you sent your son Jesus. And how will you, who has already given us the very best gift you could ever give, not also provide for our other needs as well? In Jesus' name, amen.